I know what some of you are thinking today. Pastor's out of town. Brother Paul has gone wild. Well, a fellow 74 years old, I can't get too wild. So, uh, it's, it'll be a little bit different today, but uh, uh, I think you probably noticed that we have three, three pulpits up here today. And we'll be using all of them because they illustrate something that I want to say to you today. Now, for those of you who were standing out in the foyer a moment ago, and I went about six minutes over, and you noticed the title of my sermon was God's Short-Winded Preacher. I'm talking about Haggai. Haggai is the short-winded preacher. Uh, that didn't mean that I am. But I'll try to let you out on time <clears throat> because we want to talk about really the entire book of Haggai. Uh, if you would like uh, to put this in historical context, you really have to look back at Ezra and Nehemiah uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's the historical order of these books. Now I realize that Ezra and Nehemiah is way over about the middle of the Old Testament, uh, uh, part of the Old Testament, and that uh, these last uh, three books are right here at the end of the Old Testament. But historically, that's where they belong. And if you want to uh, set that in historical context, you have to actually look uh, over in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, we, uh, we're introduced to Haggai and Zechariah. And that's in the fifth chapter of the book of uh, Ezra. Uh, but I want to talk to you today about discouragement. Because I believe today that the number one problem in the church is discouragement. Unfortunately, we let things get out of our way. And we become discouraged just like the Israelites did in the day in which Haggai was called to, uh, pro uh, to prophesy over them. Uh, I believe it's, uh, in, uh, that discouragement is uh, rampant among the pastors. Uh, I have many pastor friends that I've talked to from time to time. And they'll tell me, you know, my church is not doing too well. And I, and, and I preach my heart out. And I cry out to the Lord for sermons, and it seems to fall on deaf ears. Well, when I was pastor, I used to think that I would deliver a real dynamic sermon to the guy in the, on the front row, like Brother John. And he would put it back to the guy who's behind him. And then they would put it back to the next person, next person. And then the last person on the pew would throw it out the back window. And so that's why I felt sometimes when I preached and nothing happened. I think that's the number one problem among pastors is discouragement. And, and, and that's the reason why they change churches about every three or four or five years. Uh, we're, we, we're to be commended that Brother Mike has been with us as long as he has. Because it means that somewhere along the line he's found some answers for this great problem in the life of the church. So I want to talk to you today about discouragement. You see, the Israelites had come all the way from Babylon, and they had uh, made that three or four, five-month journey. We don't know how long it took them, but they had come back for three specific reasons. First of all, God had assigned them the responsibility of coming back and rebuilding the temple and reestablishing Jehovah worship and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And they came back after that long trek, that long journey. 
And they began to do what God had called them to do. First of all, they built an altar and they offered a burnt offering sacrifice as a praise to God that they had made that journey all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, I know if you look in your maps in the back of the, your Bible, it'll look like it's just a few miles between Babylon and Jerusalem. But when you get over there, it's quite a long journey, especially if you're on foot and there's no means of transportation except the foot power. And so when they got back, they did build that altar and they started to build the temple. And they laid out the outline of the temple. And if you look at Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, the Bible says that when the old men, those are the guys who had been boys when they left in captivity. Now they are 75, 80, 90 years old. They had made their journey back, looking for that day when they would restore the temple, the, that magnificent Solomon's temple that was so big and so ornate and so elaborate. And when they saw that little bitty temple outline, the Scripture says that they wept. They wept so loudly, there were some who shouted for joy because uh, they had seen the temple now being rebuilt. But their weeping was so loud that you could not distinguish between the, the, the shouts of joy and the, the weeping with tears. And so they were disappointed. And they began to get discouraged. First of all, there were those who were outside of the kingdom of Israel who had been there when the children of Israel were taken off into captivity. For 70 years they were gone. And they had intermarried with their captors. And according to what uh, the people who came back believed, they were not candidates to help rebuild the temple. And so they said, no, you cannot help rebuild the temple. When I thought about that, I thought about, you know, that's very harsh. Here are people who want to help build the things of God. And the people of God says, no, you cannot do that. And then I remembered. I remembered something. You see, God's work is not suited for the hands of those who are co not committed to God. The work of God is not suited for the hands of those that are not committed. You know, sometimes as churches, we put people in positions of leadership who are not really committed to God. And we expect the work of God to get done. And when it doesn't, we're disappointed. I don't know why we should be disappointed. We have put people in positions that are not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart. And how can we expect the work of God to get done by the people who are not committed to God? And so the people of Israel began to be very discouraged. They were discouraged from without. They were also discouraged from within. Because the people that were trying to build uh, that temple began to realize that they were not capable. They did not have the means whereby to build a replica of the Solomon's temple. And so they began to grumble and gripe among themselves. And then God brought a man on scene by the name of Haggai. And I know that I, I am envious of Haggai. I really am. I'm almost to the point of committing the sin of envy. 
Because here's a guy that preached four sermons over a period of four months. And it changed the destiny of a nation. Wouldn't you like to do that? I don't know about you, but I'd like to be the preacher that preached four simple sermons that changed the destiny of a nation. That's what Haggai did. I want us to look at those four sermons today. Now you're saying, okay, Brother Mike's out of town. He's going to preach four sermons. Oh, well, let's see if we can get it done. First of all, look at at chapter 1. The book of Haggai, chapter 1, he said, and beginning in the third verse, look for these phrases, and the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, that's the key. If you see those words, another sermon is about to begin. You'll find that in chapter uh, 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 10, and also in chapter 2, verse 20. That's the four sermons right there. What was the problem? Why were they so discouraged? You might ask yourself that question. I don't know what they uh, had to uh, be discouraged about. They had come back to the promised land. Things were okay. It was an exciting time. They were back in their homeland. They had been gone 70 years. Why should they be discouraged? Well, the same thing that got them often gets us. Oftentimes the church comes They gather together, and they come discouraged, and they leave discouraged. I don't know why it should be that way, because when we we get a word from God, it ought to change our life. And oftentimes, it doesn't. We come discouraged, and we leave discouraged. What happened? What caused the children of Israel to be discouraged? Well, first of all, they had their interest in self. They had their interest in self. Here was the word of God. It says, is it time for you, O you dwell in sealed houses, and this house is waste? You see, when they got back to Jerusalem, they got busy laying out the temple and building the altar and picking up a few things here and there, making the city look a little bit acceptable, and all of a sudden they said, well, you know, we need to build a house. We're going to be here a long time. Heard about the fellow who went to Home Depot. And he said, I want some two-by-fours, except he said, I want some four-by-twos. And so the guy said, well, how long do you want them? He said, I want them for a long time. I'm going to build a house. So here they are. They said, we got to build a house. We're going to be here for a long time. So they said, while we're building a house, let's build a beautiful house. And they spent all their time building their own houses. While the temple of God lay waste for 16 years. They had gotten so busy with self, they neglected the work of God. You see, oftentimes we get busy building things for ourselves. We get our minds on ourselves. We get our interest on ourselves. And all of a sudden we realize that we have neglected the important things of life. Sometimes families get together And they start raising their children and they try to give them everything that they can think of. And all of a sudden the kids are gone and grown and gone. And they realize they've missed the most important things in their lives. They've wasted their time. What's the advice for us today? Well, when we quit chasing 
after ourselves and living for ourselves and running ourselves ragged, buying every gadget ever invented, running here and there trying to satisfy ourselves, only to discover that we are spiritual beings. And physical things can never satisfy the hunger in the human heart. God made us with an empty spot there for Him. We can never satisfy the hunger in the human heart by, by, spirit, by physical things. We can only satisfy it with a personal relationship with the God who made us and who loves us. And until we learn that, we're going to be discouraged and disappointed. You know, we, we sing a song here and everybody gets involved in it. Our choir's rocking when they sing it. It's hard for us to live it, though. Here's what the song says. Who can satisfy my soul like you? Who on earth can comfort me and love me like you do? Who could ever be more faithful and true? And I will trust in you. And I will trust in you, my God. Lord Jesus, there is none like you. Oh, we like that song, don't we? But do we live it? Do we really live it? Is our life focused on Him and our relationship with Him? Or is it just words that we say? The best thing we can do for our families financially and spiritually is to be faithful with the Lord, to the Lord for what He's blessed us with. Some time ago I heard about a church in Texas who made an appeal for a free will offering. And the pastor got up and he said, look, folks, we don't need the money. Our church is financially well off, but we, you need to give it. And I'm challenging you to give. And he called out a, almost an ungodly amount. Well, to his surprise, the church responded. And they gave a lot of money, extra money. Well, they didn't need the money. But all of a sudden, they began to realize that there were a lot of folks in need. Inside the family and outside the family. And they took that money and began to meet the needs of those that had special needs in their life. One man testified, he said, The greatest day of my life was when a young man came down who was about to drop out of college because of the lack of funds. And our church gave him a scholarship. And he went leaping and praising God because God had met his need. That church didn't need the money, they thought. They had enough money to pay their bills, but they didn't have enough money to meet needs. Dear friends, the greatest thing we can ever do with what God has blessed us with is to give so that God can meet needs. That's where we are today. If we get discouraged... We need to realize that God's wanting to meet needs. Listen to what Malachi, the last of these three in the book said. Bring ye all the tithes of the storehouse, that there might be meat in my house, that we might pay the bills, meet the budget. And see if I'll not open up to you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you that you will not be able to receive. Do you believe that? 
You see, if we believe that, we'd be more faithful to God with our tithes and offerings. As I said to him a moment ago, Haggai first made his appearance in, in Ezra chapter 5. But in Ezra chapter 3, the old men saw that little puny temple that had been laid out. And the scripture says they wept in horror because that little temple was nothing like Solomon's temple. That's where he began his second sermon. And his second sermon was about size. You see, they got their eyes on size. My church is bigger than your church. Let me remind you of a little truth that you need to write down. It's not how big your building is, but it's how big the God that lives in your building is. It don't make any difference how, what size your church is. It's just how big the God is that lives there, that works there, that ministers there. Sometimes we get our eyes on the big things and we let, let the little things go to waste. Do you know that there are 206 bones in the skeleton of the average person? Give or take two or three. The largest bone in your body is the femur. It measures about 18 or 19 inches in the average adult male. If that femur is broken, you will know it. Because your femur is that bone that enables you to stand up on your feet and walk. But do you know there's another bone in your body that if you had to have a look at it, you'd probably want to take a microscope. Or at least a magnifying glass because it's called the stirrup bone. It's located inside the ear next to the eardrum. It's that little bone that vibrates and enables you to hear when someone speaks. In my last church, before I went off to Florida, I pastored a church that had a deaf ministry. We had about 40 people sit over there where Brother John and Miss Paula and those are sitting right now. One morning I was preaching and my interpreter was interpreting every word I was saying and I was getting excited about what I was saying and I said some big words. For me it's big words. And she was just trying to on her fingers like this, you know. And all of a sudden all the deaf people started laughing real loud. I thought, what in the world did I say? Did I say something that was bad? So after the service, she came up and said, Brother Paul, I apologize. She said, you were speaking so fast, and I was trying to spell all those words on my fingers, and finally I said, whatever the pastor said. <laughs> so they got a good laugh. Because... Their stirrup bone was not working. Now, most of us will never suffer from a broken femur. But if we live long enough, almost all of us will suffer 
from a damaged or non-functioning stirrup bone. Because that's what fuels the hearing aid ministry. That's what the industry of the hearing aids is all about. It's to try to override and supersede. And sometimes even implants has to be placed in our ears. Because we put our eyes on the big stuff. And we miss the most important thing. You see the sermon here is that the act is far more important than the amount. The fact that they were building a temple was more important than how big it was. A little poem I ran across several years ago. Shamgar had an ox goad. David had a sling. Samson had a jawbone. And Rahab had a string. Mary had some ointment. And Aaron had a rod. Dorcas had a needle. But all were used for God. So, Haggai's sermon is, don't worry about the size. Just do what God tells you to do. No matter how great or how small, and He'll bless it. Then he had a third sermon. That sermon comes out of the 10th verse of the second chapter. You see, they ran into a problem. And so he gave the priest... A riddle. The riddle is found in verses 12 and 13. Now we know in the kosher law business. That if something that a sacrifice is going to be offered to, the, to God. That it must be kept clean. So he said to the priest. If an offering is to be offered to God. And you put it in. Your clothes and it touched something unclean. Is the offering unclean? Of course the priest said yes. And if you take a food offering. And, and, and it's, uh, it touches something. Is it unclean? Yes. If it touches a dead body. Is it unclean? Yes. You see that, that was all very common knowledge. And then he comes to the punchline. He says then answered Haggai. Verse 14. So it is this people, so it is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, that they which offer this is unclean. You see what was happening, the laborers were working with sinful hands, dirty hands, dirty hands, dirty hands, germs, are deadly in the world in which we live. That's why in every bathroom you'll see a sign that says all employees must wash their hands before they leave this room. How much more is important for the hands of the workmen of God to be clean? You see, oftentimes we don't realize that sometimes we approach God's task with dirty hands, with sin in our life. We need to be clean. That's what he was saying to the priest. He's saying that when it becomes contaminated, it must be cleaned. It must be made clean. It must stay clean. We're trying to serve God with dirty hands and dirty hearts. God will not accept it. 
You see, we need cleaning. God's made provisions for that. If we'd only listen. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, confession is not only good for the soul. I did that in the first service. I didn't want to disappoint you, so I did it in the second service. Confession is not only good for the soul, but it's good for the spiritual life, the cleansing of the spiritual life. We're going to serve God. We must do it with clean hands and a pure heart. If your hearts are not pure, we contaminate everything we touch. That's what he was saying to the priest. He's saying, if your hands are not clean, just like that kosher law, just like that ceremonial law, if it touches something unclean, the whole thing becomes unclean. When our hearts are impure, it contaminates everything thing we touch then he comes to that last sermon in chapter uh, chapter 2 verse 20 and he says the word of the Lord came again unto Haggai in four the fourth and twentieth day of the month you see in four months September the first December the twenty fourth In four months, he preached these four sermons. He said it came to him on the 24th day of the month. And here was the message. Here was the sermon. He says the sanctuary is being finished because in three and a half weeks, if you read the scripture, in three and a half weeks, they got busy and started reconstructing the temple. When that temple was finished, he says now you have a sanctuary, but you don't have a Savior. You see, they're working with dirty hands. They had service, but no sanctification. Now they had the sanctuary, but they had no Savior. Now, I want you to notice something here because it's kind of tricky if you look at this. That's why the Word of God says, Study to show yourself approved unto God a workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. If you pick up your Bible on Sunday morning, the only time you read it is in Sunday school, you're not going to learn anything. That's why he tells us to study. And I need you to study right here. Because if you don't, you're going to miss what it says. First of all, he says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And say, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders will come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. There's going to be a revolution among those that are against the people of God. Notice verse 23. And in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, uh, and I will make thee a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now here's what he says. He says, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, you're going to be like a savior to these people. But you see, God's word is not only historical, but it's also prophetic. That little old temple that was being built right there, where Jehovah worship was being practiced on a daily basis, 
one day he was going to send a savior to that temple who was going to be the Messiah. One day that, that man called Jesus is going to walk into that little temple where they've been practicing Jehovah worship for a long time. He was going to take the scroll from the hand of the attendant. He's going to unroll it. And he's going to say those famous words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I'm going to preach deliverance to the captives. Salvation. Healing. God has sent me here to do that. That little temple that they were building there in 407 B.C. was the beginning of when Jesus was going to come. You say, well, what about Zerubbabel? What was this thing about him being royalty, a signet ring? Well, look over in Luke 3.27. Luke 3.27. And tell me what you see there. All of a sudden, Zerubbabel becomes in the line of David, in the line of Jesus. He, like Rahab, becomes the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27 says, which is the son of Joanna, which is the son of Resh. The son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Shantel, which was the son of Nahor. Jesus, great, 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 back grandfather was Zerubbabel. You see, God didn't lie. He told us exactly what was going on. He said, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you royalty. I'm going to, royalty was a signet ring that when it was pressed into wax gave great authority. He says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you a signet ring. In that day, one day, I'm going to send a great deliverer, a savior, and you're going to be the one through whose line it comes. You see, sometimes we don't realize how important we, what we do for Christ really is. Several years ago, Dr. W.A. Criswell, now home with the Lord, was telling a friend of his, Bill Bassett, about his conversion experience. And he said, I was just a little toe-headed boy in Oklahoma, and a a pastor came and preached a revival at my church. His name was John Hicks. John Hicks led me to the Lord. Here is W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, 26,000 members who had sent out hundreds of missionaries whose thousands and thousands of people had been saved in his church, was won to the Lord by John Hicks. In a summer revival in a small town in Oklahoma. Bill Bassett said, Oh, isn't that ironic? I know John Hicks. I knew John Hicks. 
I went to visit John Hicks a few days before he died. John had a broken heart because he wondered if he had done enough for his Lord. John Hicks did not know that day when he put his hand on that little toe-headed boy and led him to Jesus, that that little boy was going to grow, grow up to be Wally Amos Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church, preacher of the gospel. Dear friends, when you're working in that preschool and children's department, or in that young adult department, and you're touching lives, and you're ministering to people, and you're sharing the gospel with them. You may not know who they're going to grow up to be. They might be the pastor of this church one day. God may be using them on a mission field somewhere. So dear friend, don't be discouraged. Whatever you do, do it with all of your might unto the Lord. God will keep the score. Problem is, we're trying to keep score. And you, you have never been intended to keep score. You don't know what's going on anyhow. You see, God stands over our ministry and He sees everything that not only is happening, but what's going to happen. The greatest problem in the churches today is discouragement. And we don't have a reason in the world to be discouraged. Maybe the reason we are, we've got our mind on self. We're trying to figure out who's bigger than the other. Size. We've got a lot of service, very little sanctification. When we come into the sanctuary, there's no Savior. Dear friend, be encouraged. God is at work. He's going to work things out. In fact, He promises. He promises that all things will work together for good to them that love God and those who are the called according to His purpose. That's His promise. Paul reiterated that. We have no reason the world will be discouraged. Lift up your heads because God's still on His throne and He's still working. He's not through with us yet. There are some of you here in this congregation today, some of you don't know anything about a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not judging you. That's not my intention at all. But I see the way we live sometimes. And I know the, the way we live sometimes does not demonstrate that we know Christ as Lord and Savior. Several years ago, I had the privilege of baptizing one of my deacons for 25 years who got saved. Brother John, that's the best ones. Saved deacons are the best in the, in the bunch. You see, you have to have a personal relationship 
with Jesus. Some of you here floundering around, you come in discouraged, you leave discouraged, you hadn't found your place. Well, you, what, are you looking for a place? If you're looking for a place, God's got a place for you. It may be here or it may be somewhere else. You need to find it. When you're where God puts you, doing what God wants you to do whenever He wants you to do it, you're the happiest person in the world. When you're not doing what God wants you to do, you're miserable. Let me encourage you today. Get your mind off of self. Get your mind off of size. Get your mind on being sanctified, set apart for God. And look to the Savior. He's ready to help you.